And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God Let's pray. Father God, what can we say today except that he is risen, that he is risen indeed, and that here on this day that our faith is found and uh, we are not put to shame and we are not in vain, Lord, for believing that you have been raised from the dead, Lord. Um, but Christ the victor has raised and has conquered death, Lord, and we are now free to walk in life, Lord. So even today as we stand before you in your house, Lord, may our hearts be open to what you have for us today, and that just as those three women, Lord, were struck with trembling and astonishment, Lord, may we be struck, Lord, by your power, and not at a man who is crucified or the dead walking among us, Lord, but your king, your son, in his glory coming to us. That's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, for many years now, the novelist and the poet and, yes, farmer, sometimes you don't see those words go together, but they're true of this man, Wendell Berry, has spent Sunday mornings taking meditative walks in the woods right near his home in northern Kentucky. He's captured some of these observations and these musings what he likes to refer to as Sabbath poems, in a book that was published several years back called A Timbered Choir. In one of his poems, Barry calls this time of year, this spring time of year, which we all love so very much, he calls it the too late for frost but the too early for flies kind of season. It's the time of the year where air carries along bird songs. And the long breath of the wind is borne along by new leaves. It's a beautiful picture of the spring. In that same poem, he also says this is the time of year where the farmer entrusts his greatest work to the ground. He says the seed is in the ground. Now may we rest in hope while darkness does its greatest work. Now those few lines, though commenting on farming could be read as a commentary on the post-death and pre-resurrection hours of the Lord Jesus Christ. That bruised and lacerated body of Jesus, now stiffened, lying on a cold slab in a tomb, is the seed in the darkness, in the hope that we must rest in. 
where in that darkness some of the greatest work will be done. The only problem is that here in the retelling in Mark chapter 16, we learn that, well, nobody was hoping for it. That the seed that had been planted, indeed, the seed of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, who would ultimately destroy death, this seed was planted in that tomb, but there weren't many people watching for its sprouting. There weren't many people looking for the rest that would come in its hope. Wrecked with grief, we see the women here in Mark 16 go to the tomb at daybreak, seeing a stone that is rolled away, and they do not anticipate that it is the resurrection. They do not see it as the beginning of the great harvest. No, they, as G.K. Chesterton puts it in his wonderful book, The Everlasting Man, he says, they hardly realized that the world had died in the night and that what they were looking at for the very first time was the new creation. Now for a few moments together here in Mark chapter 16, I want to re-experience those hours with you through the eyes of these women. The bewildering, terrifying and ultimately hope-filled reality of a missing body that speaks to the deepest of truths. These women, unbeknownst to themselves, are the very first witness of the greatest miracle, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And little did they know that they had seen the passing of the last night of the old world and that they were on the cusp of the inbreaking of a new day the light of which we are still under. I want to look at the text under the last night of the old world. And then I want to look at it with you in the new dawning of a bright new day. Now the text really opens with these three women. Women that if you've studied the book of Mark, you've read through the Gospels, women that you have heard of, women's names whom you have seen, Mary Magdalene. This is the Mary that Jesus cast seven demons out of and restored to spiritual health. Mary, the mother of James, an ardent follower of Jesus, who was just on Friday standing at the foot of the cross next to Mary Magdalene. And Salome, likely the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, who in John's Gospels we learn that she is the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Three women closely involved with the ministry of Jesus from his very beginning all the way through his life, up through his crucifixion, now coming to the tomb, filled with immense love for him. We see the love in the actions that they take here in the midst of the text. For just as the colors were beginning to to show up on the horizon where the, the dark and shadowy streets of Jerusalem were just now beginning to see the dawn, these women were already up and in a hurry to get to the tomb. This is not their first time to the tomb. They had already been to the tomb on Friday evening. Joseph of Arimathea, who had been given custody of Jesus' body by Pilate, had laid Jesus in this very tomb, and the women had followed him there. 
They watched at some distance, being sure that they knew exactly where it was that their Lord had been laid. They did so because they loved him, but they did so also because they had plans. We're told on that Friday evening that they began preparing their spices. The spices that here on Sunday morning, the beginning of the week, they would now begin to apply to his body, or at least that was their thought. The Sabbath was upon them, though, so they had to wait. The Jewish Sabbath, a day of worship, a day of rest, what we've come to know as Holy Saturday. This was the day between Good Friday and Jesus' resurrection on that Sunday. The women had already prepared their spices way in advance, but they couldn't get there in time before the Sabbath had begun, and no work would be done on the Sabbath. It would have to wait until Sunday. And so there they sat, still, on the day of rest. Probably the most restless day of rest that they ever experienced. Having the horrific events of Friday still emblazoned upon their minds, impressed upon their hearts, probably something akin to post-traumatic stress. They had placed all their hopes in the Lord Jesus Christ, and now he was gone. It's probably part of the reason they got up so early. On that Sunday morning, they probably didn't sleep a week. On Sunday night, they, they had probably gone to sleep, as it were, with their tennis shoes on, ready to run to the tomb, ready to be there at the break of dawn. They wanted to be with the body of their Lord. They, they wanted to show their love. They wanted to pay their respects. They wanted to tend to the physical form of the one in whom they had come to love. They wanted to do what would be natural for a loved one, especially at this particular period in time to do. They wanted to slow down as best they knew how the decomposition process. Jesus' body had been embalmed hastily on Friday night. We were told that Nicodemus, Joseph, and Arimathea were a part of that process. But here the women coming after the fact on that Sunday, ready to finish off the job, properly speaking. And they wanted in all of the human practices possible, to keep that body around as long as it could be kept. They wanted to, to, to mask the smell of decay that would have been overwhelming by this particular point. And so they hurry here to the tomb, and, and yet along the way they're concerned about something because they know there's an obstacle, an obstacle to the mission, the stone. They knew about this stone, and they're pretty sure, as you can see in the text, that their collective strength and energy is not going to be enough to budget, to be able to move it out of the way so that they're going to be able to get into the tomb. And yet, they go by faith anyway. Not knowing how this scenario is going to play itself out, they go with their spices anticipating some way, somehow we'll get in to be able to apply this, this spice to the body of the Lord Jesus and well, who knows? Maybe they were thinking the centurions, the guards. We're told that on Saturday, the, the, the guards were, were posted by the Roman officials and that the tomb was sealed in and around the rock. They wanted to be sure that Jesus' body stayed exactly where it was supposed to stay. 
Apparently, rumors of this thing called resurrection were already afoot, and they didn't want anybody snatching the body and then claiming that Jesus had been raised from the dead. You understand this would have caused, well, I don't know, maybe a movement. Maybe a group of people who would have believed and followed and kept, as it were, this idea of Savior and Messiah and Lord alive. They had finally gotten to the point where they were beginning to stamp out this, this ministry of Jesus. They had hoped that they were putting to rest, both literally and figuratively, what it is that he had been about. They wanted to be sure through the posting of the guards and the sealing of the stone that no more strange things had happened. But as the women are making their way to the tomb, they don't realize they're not going to need the guards. They're going to need anybody else for that matter. Mark tells us, looking up, they see the tomb and that the stone is rolled away. Don't you wonder what was going through their minds in that moment? What was going through their minds when they look up? They just had a conversation with each other. How are we going to move the stone? You think the guards are going to be there? I don't know. Bring a big stick. Maybe we can leverage it. I don't know. They're thinking through, how can we get in? to embalm the body of Jesus. And as they come upon the tomb, they see the stone rolled away. And you wonder, what in the world was going through their minds? You, you half expect Mark to say something like, and they remembered the words of Jesus that he had spoke to them concerning his resurrection, and they believed. But you get nothing of the sort. In fact, we get nothing at all regarding what the women were actually thinking in that moment. All we know is that they're shocked. And that the shock is just beginning. For they are about to stumble upon mysteries that they can hardly even imagine. Mark and his economy of words doesn't linger long here. He simply tells us that the women are active. They move towards the tomb and ultimately they enter the tomb and there the mystery grows a little bit larger. We're told that a young man was in there sitting on the right side dressed in white. We know this is an angel. In Matthew's account and in John's account, we have the retelling and actually the language that's used here of a countenance that is like lightning, a raiment that is as white as snow, a picture of an angel, a description of a supernatural being. But why has this angel come? Well, he's come because this is, well, this is up to this moment the most significant redemptive moment in history. And angels come at significant moments in redemptive history. I mean, just think about it. The birth of Isaac uh, foretold it was through angels. The giving of the law. We're told that it was a reign with with angels. We're told at Jesus' birth, when when the sky opens up and the heavenly hosts come down to the shepherds, it was testified to by angels. We're told in the ministry of Jesus, even in Gethsemane, that he was ministered to by angels. These pivotal moments in redemptive history, accompany the presence of angels. And what do the angels do when they come? Well, they give a message. In fact, that's what their name means. The word angel simply means messenger. And that's what we have here with the angel who is here in the tomb. 
He says to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they have laid him. It's a word of divine revelation. It's a word of explanation, of interpretation, telling them what it is that's happened, helping them understand and to draw the right conclusion from what their eyes are witnessing. Think of how important this is. If the women had come upon the tomb and the stone had been rolled away and they walked in and they saw the grave clothes off to the side, what would have been their initial thought? What conclusion would they have drawn? Well, they would have drawn that he had been stolen. They would have drawn that the dead, partially now decomposing body of Jesus where rigor mortis had been begin to set in, this body has now been snatched away. They would have assumed that there was nothing, nothing less than theft that had happened right here. But the interpretive word of the angel tells us that something really more significant is happening. That this Jesus has risen and that he is not here. The angel is in a sense saying, the late night of the old world is gone. And the breaking in of the new creation is upon you. Words that to us, when we conceive of them, are incredibly comfort, or comforting, incredibly confident instilling. We feel strong, we feel encouraged when we hear, He is risen, He is not here. But the women on that first Easter morn felt the exact opposite. Confusion. They felt concern. We're told there in verse 8 that they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. The women didn't know how to make heads or tails of what it was that the angel had just spoken to them. What it is that they had witnessed with their own eyes. They are the first people to hear of Jesus' resurrection. The angel is making it known to them. The angel is now commissioned to them to be the heralds, the first heralds of the resurrection. And they're shaking in their boots. They cannot wrap their heads around what it is that has taken place. Still, the memory of Jesus' words with regards to the resurrection seem a million miles away from them. And how can we... Blame them for this experience. We shouldn't have disdain for these women. For would we have really been different? The one in whom you've loved, the one in whom you've placed all your hopes, the one in whom you're expecting to see their dead body, to apply to them the, the spices that you have brought as an act of love and of service to them, you find missing and an angel arrayed in right, whose countenance is like lightning, is speaking to you about something you've, you've never conceived of resurrection, and you in that moment have now been charged to be the mouthpiece through which the world is supposed to believe this, you would have ran too. You would have been freaked out like they were. You would have been seized with trembling. You would have wondered, what do we do with this? What does all of this mean? Walking back through Jerusalem, second-guessing whether they really heard what they heard, comparing the notes as to what it is that the angel had actually said. 
The women were overwhelmed. And they likely thought that the end was at hand. In Jewish theology, in the first century, looking back upon the language of resurrection, it was assumed that resurrection would only happen at the very end of time. What this meant was that when the women heard that the resurrection had occurred for Jesus, they likely assumed that the resurrection for all of those who had died in the faith was about to happen. That what Jesus had just occurred for him was likely to happen for Israel across the board. As they run back to Jerusalem, they're weighted with a message about their loved ones of whether now they're about to be resurrected. Where are their children? What's about to take place? Their mind would have been filled with all kinds of thrilling fear and excitement and mystery about what is coming now around the bend. And in a sense, all of their emotions are correct. Because in a very real sense, this was the beginning of the end. And it was the end of the beginning. That the last night of the old world had fallen upon them. And the breaking in of a new creation was beginning to take hold. And little did they know, they were the first to hear of it. And what does this mean? Where do we go from here? Do you see, these women still inhabited, as much as we often do, the thinking of the old world. We confessed earlier in our service from 1 Corinthians 15 how we live functionally as if the resurrection never happened. We're afraid of all kinds of things in life. We shake in our boots over things that Jesus tells us very clearly he's going to take care of. And that he's already conquered. And that the greatest enemy of your soul has already been slayed. And that you ought not fear any lesser enemy. The worst thing the world can do to you is kill you and then you come back to life. That's how it plays out. And yet we live functionally as if that's not true. In... in Ridiculous, irrational, as it were, fear from the state of faith. We still think that we live in the old world. So did the women. Think of it. They're bringing spices to Jesus to slow the decomposition of his body. Their greatest dilemma is how to get into the tomb. And all of the while, God through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, is solving the greatest dilemma of history, which is preserving your decomposition. And one day you will come forth from the tomb. The women were worried about covering the smell of decay. And at the exact moment, the sweet aroma of new life, a springtime, and all of creation was breaking forth as an aroma to the nostrils of the Father. It's ironic that they were worried about how to get in to see Jesus when all of the while He was spending all of His time getting out to them. You see, they had come to a graveyard expecting to find someone dead. And Jesus was in the graveyard turning it into a garden for something living. 
You see, Chesterton was right. This was the end of the old world. This was the dawn of the new creation. It's what Paul actually tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. That in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by also a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, the old world, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, the breaking in of the new creation. There's a short story by Oscar Wilde. It's found in this funny little book called The Oxford Book of Modern Fairy Tales. It's called The Selfish Giant. It's a story about a giant who owned a beautiful garden. But he had to leave, go away for seven years to visit an ogre friend in a faraway country. While he was away, the children in the neighborhood took up residence in his garden. They made it a playground. And upon arriving back after seven years of being away, the giant was furious. The children had taken over his garden He said, what are you doing there? My garden is my own garden. And he ran them off and built a high wall so that they couldn't get inside. The next spring, something very strange occurred. Spring visited every garden in the country except the garden of the selfish giant. He couldn't understand it until one morning he was awakened by the song of a bird And looking out his window, the giant saw that the children had snuck back into the garden and were playing upon all of his trees and running, as it were, through his old flower beds, which had been dead for quite some time. What surprised him was that every branch that they swung from would spring into blossom. And the beds that they would run across would begin to sprout flowers. As he called to them, this time excited and encouraged about what he saw, the children frightfully slipped through that hole in the wall and left. All but one boy. One boy who stood underneath one tree that had not yet blossomed. He approached the boy and picked him up and put him on the tree. And as soon as he did, the tree burst into spring and the birds of the air began to sing. The giant wind up taking an axe to that wall laying all the stones aside so that the children of the neighborhood could come in and play. And he would always look for the one boy that he'd actually gotten to pick up who burst that final tree into spring. And he would never come. Year after year, he would never come. And then one winter morning, when when trees don't flower, the giant saw something so wonderful he could hardly believe his eyes. It was the boy. The boy that he had long looked for. He he could see that the boy was standing underneath the same tree. And this time the tree was in full bloom. The only tree in the garden in the middle of the winter in full bloom with white blossoms. With great joy the giant came down and greeted the boy. But as he drew near, the giant saw that in the palms of the child's hands there were prints of nails. And that the same was true on his feet. The giant grew hot 
and angry with rage and asked who had done this. But the child calmed the giant down and said, these are the wounds of love. Pondering the words the giant didn't understand and asked, who are you? The child merely responded, you let me play in your garden. And now you shall come and play in mine. It is called paradise. There's a line in the short story when the giant had gotten old. Where it said the giant had learned not to hate the winter. For he had learned that the winter was merely the spring asleep. And that even the flowers needed time for resting. You see, Mark is telling us in the dark of that tomb with the seed of the Son of Man planted that the wintry night was coming to a close. And that an eternal springtime a spring that blooms even in the middle of the dead of winter was beginning to take hold, that the frozen tundra of the earth was beginning to be warmed. And this is why at the end of Mark 16, verses 7 and 8, the angel says, don't go away silent. This is not a time for fleeing in silence. You are to go in joy. And you are to herald this news to the disciples and all would-be disciples from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. Go to those who are sorrowing that they might be comforted. Go to those who are lost so that they might be found. Go to those who are doubting so that they might believe. Go to those who are hopeless so that they might hope. Yes, go to even my disciples who are nowhere to be found in this passage. Go even, yes, to Peter, who's denied me. And let them know that all their forsaking is forgiven. For the rumors of Jesus Christ's demise are greatly exaggerated. Today is the day of the new spring. Christ is risen today. He is risen indeed. And in the rising of Christ, everything changes. Even for you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Him. But for those who have believed in Christ, He is your justification and your future resurrection. The night is far spent. Watch for the dawn. The spring is here. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as you have shown us from your word, you're a God of keeping promises. Keeping promises and breaking curses. 
And that is what you have done for us in Christ. The seed that would crush the head of the serpent. Indeed, the Alpha and the Omega. The Lord Jesus Christ, our all in all. The risen Savior. Our High Priest. King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.